2: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
3: Hi there, you are listening to the Third Cars Pocket Conference, where your next great story begins. On this show, we share sessions from past Third Coast conferences featuring the world's top radio makers and podcasters. I'm your host, Dennis Funk. In this session from the 2017 Third Coast Conference, the presenters explore whether traditional objectivity in journalism is on its way out. NPR editor Alicia Montgomery and reporter and editor Shea Tehfa Mohajer hash out points of agreement and disagreement over the role of objectivity in radio and print. Here is the argument of objectivity.
1: My name is Alicia Montgomery and I am once and future NPR employee and NPR semi-lifer. I'm going to be the um, the supervising senior editor and producer of Morning Edition, but before that I was at Code Switch. And my position is that Objectivity has been given a bad name by the way it's been applied and misapplied in the newsroom. And that one of the keys to earning the trust of our audience and actually reaching out to new audiences is to figure out a way to repair our industry's relationship with objectivity and to embrace it. Um, a couple of the... And we're going to get into the details of the, the very divisive uh, issues about, around objectivity and the latest... In most recent news, but Shaya.
4: Um, and I'm Shaya Tayefa Mohajer. I'm uh, filling in for Lewis, um, but my feet are a little smaller, so um, (laughs) not that I've actually measured feet. I'm just saying I know you might have been expecting otherwise. Um, I'm a professor of journalism at USC, University of Southern California. I've learned I have to explain. I've left Los Angeles. Um, You know about our football team. Our journalism school is pretty good, too. Um, I am also an editor for Snopes. uh, What could be described as an old-timey fact-checking site. Um, We do all the old-fashioned work of figuring out what a fact is, and other than that, and what I'm probably best known for um, is that I write media criticism for the Columbia Journalism Review, um, including a piece that was very controversial um, in the wake of the Trump election, in which I said that uh, women in newsrooms and everywhere should be allowed to march for equality. Um, And I know that that sometimes is is a big no-no in newsrooms. I was afraid to write the piece, and I can go into some of that um, to talk about it as well. Um, But yeah, mostly I am an advocate for diversity, equality, and... um, infinite compassion, empathy, and curiosity in journalism. And I think that uh, those things are really more fruitful when it comes to objectivity. I think we have to uh, be willing to ask, be willing to put ourselves out there, and I think all the best journalists already know that. Um, But sometimes we frame objectivity in a way um, that makes us feel like we have to report from a robotic center of reality, and I would argue that doesn't exist
1: um so speaking for the robotics center <laughs> i guess no so one of the things and this was a really interesting kind of puzzle for us at code switch because code switch did a type of journalism that i think a lot of people would say is not sort of the traditional objective journalism where the journalist is sort of a character in the story but what i consider objectivity and what's missing from a lot of our newsrooms is asking our journalists, asking ourselves to figure out what our relationship is with the story. And these questions about, well, whether can you be objective are often asked of the two and a half um, minority reporters in <laughs> in your newsroom. You know, it's like, can the black reporter be objective about covering something having to do police, doing do with the police? Can the LGBTQ reporter be objective in a conversation about gay marriage? In Lewis Wallace's case, um, can a transgender reporter be objective in reporting about tra- uh, transgender issues? And my feeling is that we need to be asking all of our reporters harder questions about what it means to be objective. Um, and I did this little exercise at, at the last session, and I'm going to do it again. So everybody, bear with me. That's the kindergarten teacher in me. Um, which is, I'm going to ask a bunch of questions, and at the point where you can say yes, you stand up and stay standing. Um, And some of these are kind of, you know, demographic-y questions, but some of them seem fairly random. Um, If you've ever used a ride-hailing app. If you've ever listened to a podcast. If you have a college degree. If you never, uh, you don't get to sit down. (laughs) If you never watch football. If you identify as a Democrat or as a Republican or as an independent, Um, if you live in a household with an income above $60,000 a year. Now what do all of these experiences have in common? They all represent less than 50% of the experience of the American public. Every single one of those things. And so when we talk about who's a minority journalist and who is speaking from their own experience and kind of centering their own experience, and yes, everybody gets to sit down now. I don't want to make you you (laughs) suffer. (laughs) When we talk about who's a minority journalist and who is speaking from a minority experience without kind of disclosing your position in a story, I think that we need to think about that more expansively. And a lot of the problems that come up around who's objective and who's not, and the questions around that, what it means for our integrity, are because we don't ask everybody. We only ask me, or you, or, you know, somebody else with some kind of uh, recognizable marginal identity if they can be objective. And if we asked ourselves, as people with bachelor's degrees, if we really can be objective about the student loan crisis, or ask ourselves as people who identify with any political party, you know, any one of those political parties, if we can be objective about the other 75% of the population or, you know, between 50 and 75% of the population that identifies as something else. I mean, that is where we are losing audience. And I see a lot of the mistakes that you know mainstream media makes in covering minority communities they make the same exact types of mistakes covering communities that would, where people would not stand up and, and say yes to those questions and so i think that just trying to figure out where you are in the story and having that conversation with your editor and making sure that you're checking yourself and each other about whether you're being absolutely fair and whether you're, you're representing the facts as, as opposed to your point of view about the facts is critical to good journalism and getting that trust back. And so I'm one of those people who would be like, no, you can't go to the Women's March. And after <laughs> Shea um, uh, gives her, her remarks, I'd, I'd like to get into that a little bit more. Sure. Sure. So part of...
4: um, I had a lot of arguments in the piece, and I won't run you through all of them about why I thought um, it's okay for women to do this, but I'll start with the most basic. Um, Since the dawn of his his recorded history, women have not been treated as equals. And it's a really long history to hope to overcome in my short little lifetime. And so um, I don't want to... Um, you know, make light of all of our choices as we go through life, and we try to treat each other well. Um, but they're very small things that um, may not change this history. We may all die knowing that people are not equals. I expect we will all die, and sexism will still exist, racism will still exist. Um, but for my short while on this planet, I want to be able to say I think it's wrong. And um, so for me personally, you know, and I won't dive again too much into this, but, um, you know, I come from the perspective of being a Middle Eastern woman experiencing post 9-11 America, experiencing growing up as an Iranian Um And sort of the villainy that's assigned to that through global politics and always feeling like I needed to perform an exceptional goodness to work harder, to be better, and to show people that not only am I not a terrorist, I'm the very best American you could hope for. I worked hard for this. Um, And so... In that sense, um, thinking about how I had been treated in newsrooms, treated, seeing how women were treated in newsrooms, um, and seeing how women are treated all over the world, recognizing my exceptional privilege as an educated woman with a good job in an industry that I'm passionate about, um, I, I felt like there were, it's not just about me, it's about an entire gender. And um, I, would, I just want to stand up. And this is a moment in my lifetime when I can stand up. And I really hope that it doesn't offend anyone to demand equality. I think that's very important, that um, and that's why I became a journalist, to create equality, to create betterment, to advance um the, the rights of the weak and the disrespected. And, um, you know, I'm not a stenographer for corporations or ruling elites or celebrities. I don't, I'm not just here to parrot the views of others. I'm here to tell the kinds of stories um, that can actually make change and actually make the world better. And um, sometimes that means identifying shortcomings, failures, and outright villainy. And I'm comfortable doing that. I did it for 10 years as a reporter for the Associated Press. I was very rarely accused of bias. And Are you an AP person? All right. So <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it, was a lo- it was a long, great career, and I really liked working for the AP. Um, in a way, it gave me the shield of being an AP reporter, knowing that my work was put to a rigid test um, and editor's you know, routinely, you know, worked on me um, to bring me to what they felt like was a fairer center. Um, I'm I'm a soft-voiced and, you know, easy-to-look-at woman, but I'm going to tell you I was very difficult sometimes. Um, I disagreed, and I stood my ground, and it was not the best way to be liked in every newsroom and by every editor, um, but sometimes you do have to do those things, and you have to stand on your haunches and say, you know what, it's not the best way to tell this story. We're burying an experience. We're burying a life. Um, and, yeah, so I'm not I'm not giving a guideline for popularity or for comfort with rules, um, but I was taught to question rules. I was taught to question power. I was taught to um, figure out ways around um, dogma and, you know, comfort with just, like, you know, going along to get along. So, you know, in, in my experience, and so to back up, actually a little bit off the women's march, and to talk about Lewis, mm-hmm. um, Lewis's story. I and I'll disclose: if there are marketplace people in the room, I think you have a great product, but I haven't listened to a minute of it since you fired Lewis. Um, and I, <laughs> um, but I, and I don't know if maybe a show of hands: how many people here have trans people in their lives and in their lives and their communities? So. A lot of us have that. And, um, and before knowing Lewis, uh, we talked by phone after he was fired. I was very worried for him. Um, as you all might know, trans people live very vulnerable lives. They are booted out of jobs. They are disrespected in public and private. Um, and uh, I, was, I was honestly worried that he might do something to himself because I had seen that in my life with someone who had lost a job. And I wanted to comfort him and to know, for him to know that, um, This question of objectivity was something that I had thought about for decades and that I was afraid to raise to the face of news organizations and that he had been brave and it was the right question to ask and I wish he'd been offered a conversation. Um, But, you know, I'd I'd worked for a site called takeapart.com for a long time um, and my editor had come to me, um, and this is before Lewis, and she said, um, "We have to figure out who we care about, what we're passionate about, and who the worst treated people." Um, are right now, and I went around and I looked, and this is back when gay marriage was not yet legal. And um, but even then, I looked and I said, trans people are victims of poverty—not victims of poverty, victims of murder and violence at rates that are far exceed LGBT communities. Um, the suicide rate, the poverty rate, the unemployment rate. This community suffers an inordinate amount, mostly because people just don't like them or just refuse to respect them and so you know we did a lot of stories about the trans community and coming back to Lewis and him losing that job I thought my god here's this brave kid who um, offers who got his dream job and um, was booted from it because he dared ask a question that had sat in my mind for years Um, and so sorry I did kind of really go on a rant and I promised you I wouldn't Um, in terms of of that conversation I'm and sorry if I pigeonholed everyone else's argument about this um, into another. But um, I am curious what people think about um, that. And if, I mean, how many people sort of saw it, supported it? How many people saw it at all? Actually, I should ask first. You, you saw it? The objectivity uh, post that Lewis had. And did you guys talk about it in your newsrooms? Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about that a little bit? What was the response? You want to grab a mic?
1: Well, Happy to. Um, Lewis wrote this piece about the end, uh, that objectivity needed to be let die as a concept in, in newsrooms, that the um, election of Trump kind of signaled the need for journalists to be a little bit more forward in pointing out right and wrong in um, the political system, and that, you know, especially for people from marginalized communities, and I understand this, uh, understand the reasoning behind it, is that, you know, while, when you ask somebody to be objective about a political topic, well, what if the political topic is whether you have a right to exist, Um, whether you should have the right to vote, whether you should have the right to, um, you know, maintain a job or or stay in an apartment or marry the person who you want to marry and that is a different standard than what 's been demanded of a generation of reporters and journalists who are usually from the dominant community uh, in the country and This is kind of a cha- not a challenge because I use the word challenge as a euphemism for problem you know it 's a problem and a lot of the time, newsrooms and news leaders can be very callous about what they're expecting um, reporters from uh, marginalized communities to do. When you have the black reporters, Uh, going out to Ferguson and then going out to um, Minnesota for Philando Castile and then going to Louisiana for for Alton Sterling. And because, you know, you're the reporter of color, you're the black reporter, it's like, oh, that's your story, right? And so you're there interviewing people about the nightmare that your mom had for you and that you have for your own children over and over again. And just the way that we wouldn't expect, you know, I'm trying to think of, of an equivalent where it's like you have um, a reporter from from Paris or whatever and, and the expectation that every time something bad happens to somebody French, you send that person there. Um, or if you had... Um, a reporter who was Jewish, and every instance of anti-violent anti-Semitism, you would send that reporter. It's like, you know, when you ask that person to be objective and have the sort of what we consider the traditional standard of objectivity, you're asking for a very heavy lift. And I wouldn't disagree with that. I mean, I think that you know there is this kind of false um, opposition between a diverse newsroom and a an objective newsroom, which is that, you know, you bring in people from um, an underserved or a marginalized or minority, whatever word you want to use for it, community, and they obviously can't be objective about this list of issues. Um, And because they're reporting from their community and they come with pitches from their community, well, it's like the fact that you pitch about something that's happening in your community over and over again is proof that you're not objective. Well... You know, if we think about the questions that I just asked, how many blasted stories about Uber do we hear? Lots. Um, People who've used Uber make up 15% of the population. How many stories do we hear about, you know, and we love it because we're audio people, but podcasting? 40% of Americans have ever listened to one podcast. And if we had the same bar for, you know, questions about minority communities like the minority of people who use Airbnb or the minority of people who have master's degrees or the minority of people who are – have their kids um, competing to get into Ivy League schools, if we had the same level of skepticism about people and journalists from those communities – reporting on those stories and pitching those stories, then maybe we would have more access to all of those people who, who think that we are out of touch with America's reality. Because frankly, it's like it's not... We're, we are out of touch with America's reality a lot of the time because we will not get beyond sort of centering our own experience, thinking that everybody I know, this is something happening to everybody I know, and so it's happening to everybody and my concern about like going to a uh, protest or whatever is that you know Donald Trump didn't have any more substantial agenda gap than any other Republican presidential candidate in the last several cycles and 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump and if you tuned in or read or listened to a lot of the media that I consume and a lot of the places where people I know, love, and respect work, you wouldn't know that. You know, it's a different reality getting presented. And we may not hear the disconnect because we live in the reality where nobody voted for Donald Trump. Um, and, but the people who live in, in the other reality can hear that that's... That doesn't strike them as true because, frankly, it's not. And when we cast our lot with one side or another of, you know, a partisan issue, if this were just, it's like, we can't pretend like a women's march is including all the women or is standing for all the women. There are some very specific political points of view represented by the people who are aligned with a march like that. And we may share those, and we may think of those values as universal, but they're not. And if we, you know, throw our lot in with this group of folks, then the people who are not part of that group have a right to question whether we're going to listen to them and evaluate their arguments and tell their stories fairly. And there is a type of writing and journalism that can embrace that. And I'm not against having different kinds of journalism where, you know, you have a first-person kind of story and experience of uh, reporting. But I don't think that that's the place where journalism as a whole needs to be.
4: so, I'll, I'll, I'll respond. Um, but um, I also wanted to make sure that for the folks who didn't raise their hand and hadn't heard um, Lewis's um, piece, it, it was titled Objectivity is Dead and I'm Okay with It. And I think the the passage that gives you the biggest kernel um, is, one of the diciest issues as we reconsider our role as journalists in this moment is that of objectivity. Some argue that if we abandon our stance of journalistic neutrality, we let the quote-unquote post-fact can't win. I argue that our minds and our listeners' and readers' minds are stronger than that, strong enough to hold that we can both come from a particular perspective and still tell the truth. Um, And I have the sense that this distinction is important in this moment because we are going to have to fight for and defend what it means to serve the public as journalists. Um, He goes on to say, obviously, I can't be neutral or centrist in a debate over my own humanity. Yeah. Um, and I think, um, so a lot of what resonates about that with me um, and in um, in deciding to stand up as a woman and to say I'm a woman is that I, I, I don't, well, I was never able to pass for not a woman. <laughs> um, all of my sources know that I am a woman. I am treated as a woman in this world. Um, and I am not um, demanding anything exceptional when I say that I, wanted to, I want to be treated as an equal. Um, and I don't think that It should be such a challenge. I think it represents how male-centered our society and our industries are when a woman standing up and saying that I demand to be seen as an equal, um, when when that woman is seen as having a bias, um, I think that's really a comment on where industries are. And yes, many women voted for Donald Trump, yes, um, but I I did not. Um, And I, I also, I can say that I wrote the piece and even in my pitch I wrote that hi I know that this could end my career in news I know that um, there are a lot of people who will look at me and say that I could never be a unbiased reporter again Um, and I was at a point in my career where I decided that I had to do it anyways because honestly I was in this Facebook group of all these young women in journalism and this conversation was going on um, about, can I go, can't I go, and I don't know if I can, and I'd like to, um, and there was all this weird advice. Like, women were um, advising these younger journalists to, like, engage in subterfuge. Like, go, but do a blog post, and it'll be fine. Or, go, but just take pictures and don't hold a sign. Or, go, but, like, make sure you don't get caught doing it in social media. And I just wanted to say, go, just Go. Like, it's fine. We experience things. I go to the Trader Joe's, you know, 90 times a day, and like, one time I might go and, like, you know, get into an argument in the parking lot. It doesn't paint me as a foul human being that cannot, you know, have experiences in public and then come back to the newsroom and do solid work. My work is not my entire existence. My bias is not my identity. Um, Who I am doesn't mean that I can't be fair to everyone. Um, and I actually take, I, I honestly I take great pleasure in being fair to people. I've mm-hmm. interviewed white supremacists. I've interviewed um, people who have very productive views. I've, you know, we've all done this strange work where you are face-to-face with someone who you are diametrically opposed to politically and personally, but they, they never know it and they never find out about it, but your questions are informed by your understanding of yourself and how, you're, um, you know, how you've dealt with the information that they've interpreted differently, and those are some of the best interviews. When I am interviewing someone who I fundamentally don't agree with, and I want to know why you think that, so tell me more. I, well, I don't get that. Tell me this, and I think that's what journalism really is. It's, it's not closing yourself off Um, the moment a disagreement arises and saying, well, you're not going to be in my story. That's not journalism. Um, Journalism is when I sit there and I say, wow, I don't agree with a word of that. Keep going. Tell me more. I need to understand it. What facts are you looking at, and what is that number? Where can I find it? How would I verify it? Um, So I think, you know, some of this is... um, uh, the, the luxury of being old, I think. I look back and, and, I, and I, you know, I've had a very good career. I love everything that I've done. Um, but when I'm confronted with someone young like Lewis, who is asking formative questions about our industry... Um, and suffering major consequences, losing your dream job as a young person in a newsroom and he's good at his job he didn't get to marketplace as a young kid um, for sucking he's good at his job, he got there and he asked one tough question and the whole thing fell on him and I just, I, I can't you know, I can't um, pretend that those are good rules that do that to a marginalized person in a newsroom Um uh- Exactly. And this,
1: I, I'm, I'm going to jump in here because yeah. I would say that what happened with Lewis is exactly the problem with the way objectivity is applied, because, you know, lots of journalists in the wake of the election. And I actually think that this was kind of a mis, um, mistake because we were allowed and encouraged by editors and news leaders to say to go to the barricades to defend journalism and to say that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing and blah 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 and i'm like so we're allowed to march on our own behalf but not on behalf of every other group it's like what if we you know were as passionate about defending you know teachers or doctors, or small business people, or undocumented immigrants, or anybody else whose lives are made miserable by the federal government, you know, if we were able to do that. But no, we'll, we'll take this platform, this grand moment, when the spotlight is on us and complain about how hard Trump is making our jobs. But back to Lewis, which is that... You know, at this moment, lots of people were opining and sharing their views about the future of journalism in sort of semi-public spaces. It was all over my Facebook page, and to a certain extent, it, it remains that way. My problem with how um, Lewis was treated is that, again, this was the, an example of that objectivity standard being applied to the person in the most powerless group in a way that it wasn't applied to other people in the organization in a pretty public way. It's like I don't know Kai Rizdahl personally, but I am a listener to Marketplace, and I do follow his Twitter feed, and there were times when I was looking at some of those tweets, and I was like, it's a good thing Mark Mehmet, the public (laughs) editor, the standards editor at NPR, wasn't working at Marketplace because he would have been in Kai Rizdahl's face nonstop. And Kai Risdahl gets to say these things because he's in a position of power and authority and, frankly, in a dominant social group. And Lewis gets canned because, you know, and there's a subtext there, and and I don't disagree with this. There's a subtext there that, you know, if you are um, a minority journalist, especially in sort of um, an established, prestigious, whatever, newsroom, you're lucky to be there. And if you are a white guy journalist in that same newsroom, well, you're in your position because you deserve to be there. And so standards, different standards are applied. If marketplace is going to be sort of, you know, um, uh, orthodox, orthodox objectivity, and that meant that, you know, Lewis got fired because he crossed a line that was obvious to everyone and applied to everyone, that would have been one thing, but I thought that what happened at marketplace it was pretty clear that one standard was being applied to Lewis Wallace because of lewis 's identity and another standard was being applied up the chain and that's just that 's not acceptable and that 's the kind of thing that gives objectivity a bad name, which it 's not like the dominant narrative is the one that 's at the center of of reporting it 's not Being fair and being objective is not an identity, and it's a practice, it's a discipline, it's hard, and it's not fun, and it means that all of your friends get to go to the protest, and you stay home. It's like my mom... My mom was all over my Facebook page about going to the barricades and going to this protest, and it's like, America needs to stand up to this white privilege and white supremacy, and I'm going to this protest, and I'm going to that protest, and I'm going to the other, and I didn't, would not like my mom's Facebook post because I'm a journalist, and I've got to be fair. And people need to know that when I cover... You know, if I'm covering somebody who voted for Trump, they need to know that I don't co-sign everything my mom said on Facebook about who Trump voters are. And I think that, you know, the same way if we saw somebody go to a, a Make America Great rally and then saw them out in the field trying to cover something that's happening, you know, for Black Lives Matter, we would be like, uh... And... So it's fair for people with a different perspective from ours to question our objectivity under similar circumstances and our ability to be fair.
3: Hit hey it. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with the Q and A from this session. You're listening to Chicago's progressive radio oh. adventure. American life. I might
0: reply. The show about all the
5: unseen. Are you tired of endlessly searching for good radio stories or maybe feeling overwhelmed by the amount of podcasts filling up your feed?
6: <laughs>
5: well, worry no more because Third Coast has you covered. I'm Gwen Maxite, host of Third Coast podcast, Resound. ReSound is a themed, hour-long mix of the best in radio and podcasting from the past and present. We've been carefully curating nothing but the best stories from around the world since 2004. And we have a treasure trove of amazing audio. Each episode is bound to have something to fit every listener's individual taste. Personal stories, essays, sound art, mystery stories that twist and turn, and other audio experiments. So stop searching. Subscribe to Resound today and treat yourself to the finest stories ever told in sound. Your ears will thank us.
3: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. Welcome back. Now here's the Q and A from this presentation of the argument of objectivity. Test, test.
0: Here we go. Hi, um, Alicia. I'm Ashley Aher, and I host the podcast Terrestrial. And I'm working with Sasha. Loving it. Yeah. Um, so our show is um, it's the We're Fucked Now What podcast on the environment and climate change. <laughs>
1: And so I struggle with this idea of objectivity. From where I sit, though, it's interesting because it's about the science. And the scientific community is in pretty strong lockstep about what how things are looking and how we've contributed to the situation. Yeah. Um, so I was just really curious to hear your thoughts about, you know, both of you, when you approach, you know, we're trying to make a show that will appeal to people who maybe come from a variety of backgrounds and are not necessarily like preaching to the you know the choir, as they say. Um, but I do operate from the basic premise that the facts are the facts, and so that dictates where we start the story as opposed to trying to convince people. I always say it's emphasis on the now what, not emphasis on the word fuck. Like, we don't need to hear any more about that, right? So I'd just love to hear both of your thoughts about how you would think about a show like that.
4: Um, you know, being a, I think, very prototypical, Prototypical social justice product of the New York University School of Journalism, um, I was taught that, like, it's not good unless it's changing something. Um, so I would probably dig into environmental justice and how poor communities deal with more pollution, more um, mistreatment, and more, you know... Uh, is whether it's air or water or any of those things. You know, And we know that Flint has dirty water. I'm here to tell you a lot of places probably have dirty water. I think it's weird that that story didn't explode differently with more of us getting, going out there investigating our water. Um, I... Um, so I, I would say start there and I would say start listening to the complaints of, I know in L.A., um, our poor communities and I live very near freeways and, you know, health problems emerge from um, that proximity. And I, w- I would focus around the people who are harmed and um, the movements that are forming about around empowerment of those people. Um, to try and, I mean, you know, they're trying to push back corporations. They're trying to push lazy governments around. They're trying to get um, a future that is cleaner for their kids. Um, that, personally, since you asked personally, those are the stories I'd like to hear more of.
1: Um, I think that one of the reasons why um, traditional media kind of overcorrects in an election year, it's like all of a sudden we're hearing from folks who we haven't heard from for three years or whatever, and we're going to parts of the country that just kind of disappear from our view, is that we spend three years pretending that those people don't exist. I mean, we call it flyover country. It's like, you know, there's some state in the middle, it's square, it starts with an M, I don't know, it's, it's one of the M states. And I'm as guilty of that uh, um, of that as anyone. But the consequence, the way that we try to make up for it is to have the objective conversation about something like global warming. If 95% of (laughs) reputable scientists say that man, uh, you know, person-generated, you know, uh, factors are are driving the environment in a certain direction, that's, you just keep saying, 95% of scientists say that this is real, And they point to this consequence and that consequence and the other consequence, and we're going to report on those. And we're going to report on the policies that are making that worse. And if, I mean, at the end of that, people are like, huh, who the hell is running, (laughs) you know, who is implementing these policies that, that are leading to these harms? And they come to their own conclusion, then that's fine. That is just, I think the question that I have or the concern I have is that, A lot of what I see in the media is that we are not trusting that the audience is going to do with the information what we want them to do with the information, and that they may come to a conclusion that's different from our conclusion. And so in order to make sure that their conclusions uh, about the facts are in the right place, maybe we don't ask the hard question of the person who represents our perspective. Maybe we leave out, maybe we choose um, the person to represent the other side who is the most um, wing-nutty, just some, some. Um, And what you see happen when somebody is uncomfortable in a conversation or uncomfortable with the other side is they get this, like, cartoon cutout person to stand in for the perspective that they don't share. And this person is kind of a stand-in for all the worst stereotypes about the people who disagree with you. And so you're left with the impression, or the audience is left with the impression, that there are the people who understand the problem who are, you know, our people. And then there are those idiots, you know, represented by this, this uh, you know, this cardboard villain. And... It pushes us into this space where it's incomprehensible to us that somebody voted for the person who we didn't vote for. It's okay if somebody votes for that other person and we're like, Psh, you know, nah, not me. But the fact that our audience can't figure out a reason why somebody would vote for Donald Trump other than the, f- the idea that they're an idiot or they're a bigot says to me that we, were, we missed a stitch somewhere in our reporting. And how that works out in environmental coverage, I think, you know, something that I remember, and this was years and years and years ago, um, and this was a story that was on NPR, done by a reporter whom I love, and it was in Africa, and it was about some kind of endangered animal. It was like the elephant, some elephant somewhere. And people from the village were, you know, massacring the elephant. We heard from the people who loved the elephants and the scientists who were about preserving the elephants, and then about four minutes into this five-minute story it's like well you know a lot of the people in the village say that they're killing the elephants because they're starving and this is the only way for them to make money to feed their families and I'm like wait a minute so why weren't we talking about that before and I think that when we talk see that in environmental coverage it's like you know some of the tension points are these places where people had a way of life that was based around okay doing shitty things to the environment that, you know, we didn't understand how shitty it was 50 years ago, what you're doing to the environment, but we understand it now. And we want it to stop. Well, if stopping it means that half of this town gets out of the, the line of work that built the town um, and has to go into service jobs where they're servicing tourists um, who come from places like the places where we live, and, you know, you know, selling trinkets to us and our friends, you know, and we don't get into that part of the story until, like, minute four of a five-minute story, then, yeah, you know, is that a fair and objective piece? It's like sometimes we don't allow for the fact that the reasons why people behave badly or we perceive bad behavior in you know places that we don't go to are the same reasons that we behave badly it's do we feel threatened do we feel like something that we used to have is being taken away from us do we feel like no one is listening to us and ha- and and having that same level of understanding for people who aren't part of our communities is i think it's critical
2: Hi, I'm I'm Ramtin Arablouei. Hi, Hi. <laughs> um, I don't work in news. I work in uh, programming at NPR. I produce podcasts, but there's been a question that's kind of been bugging me, and that some of my colleagues have been talking about. and I want to get your guys' take on it. Um, uh, so the first part of it, the first part of the question is that I think we hear often that uh, we're you know the news especially like. a NPR, for example, isn't reaching like the real people in America or, you know, the heart of America. But like, if you look at the statistics, eighty percent of the population lives in urban areas, and the majority of Americans didn't vote for Trump, and the majority of Americans who didn't even vote don't agree with any of that. Um, and so I, I kind of take issue with the idea that. We're not like talking to real Americans. I I just don't understand, and 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 I think because of that, there's this weird overcompensation that causes a weird object like thing in objectivity. And I want to use an example. The Daily did a piece I think a week ago that was about a guy who walked into a Iraqi restaurant in Portland, and if you actually went back and listened to it three times, and almost eighty percent of that piece was dedicated to the soldier, Um, and. I think it's this weird thing where white people in particular have this affinity with the military, or white people go through hard things. And in that particular piece, this guy, the Iraqi, I don't know if you guys heard it, but basically an Iraqi restaurant owner, who's walking down the street one day, going to school, is essentially blown up by a car bomb. His story brings him to the U.S., he opens up a restaurant, and then one day, years later, an American soldier walks in and attacks one of the waiters in his restaurant. And I think that overcompensation leads to things like that, where you see such an emphasis on like the military person's story. Like what pain did they go through to then come in and like beat somebody up for no reason? Or like, you know, they they kill ten people, but you know, that's just something that happens in war, you know. We kill brown people. And so I think that kind of um, yes, the question, the question I want to ask you guys is what's your take on that kind of like nuanced lack of objectivity in my view? Where there's an affinity with your in-group or your in-group race group, and it leaves people like us out.
1: You know, I I want to address this directly because I don't want to leave the impression that that is not a problem, and it is a problem in our newsrooms because it's like, oh, we just discovered, you know, all of these people in all of these states that you know don't share our experience, um, and so we're going to give them sort of an open mic in a way that we wouldn't give it to to the people around us. Um, the storyline that you're talking about. You know, as a code switch person, one of the reasons why I was part of Code Switch and why I was part of Tell Me More and, you know, just about every diversity project there was at NPR is because the narrative about, you know, non white, straight, cisgender people is often about how we're getting saved (laughs) um, by white folks. And it's like, you know, the story about, you know, a community in crisis in, you know, in Washington, D.C., someplace, you know, miles, just a couple of miles away from the headquarters is all about the white person who went in and started a program to educate the poor children in this community after school when there are literally 15 uh, grandmothers, aunts, uncles, nurses, cops, In those same neighborhoods where, you know, they've just been laying out another uh, plate at dinner, or they've been opening their house and letting kids do their homework in the basement, or they've just been, you know, trying to chase the drug dealers off the corner with the broom, you know, for years, but we as news media don't pay attention to it until there's a white savior. And I think that part of what you're talking about, where this there's this kind of overcompensation now that we figured out that we missed this story about what was happening in um, in big parts of the country, I I think that that's part of the same problem with lack of objectivity. It's like, you know, there is a narrative among the people who uh, run the media, and this you know NPR is no exception that you know, racism and the other isms are dying phenomena that are carried out by a few people who we don't like and places that we don't go, and it's not hurting anybody. So a story that happens about some egregious racist incident or Islamophobic incident, or all the transgender people who get murdered you know, in American cities, that's not really newsworthy. And it's not really newsworthy. It's kind of a local story. It's not really a trend. We don't want to let you know, scare people or frighten our, our audience. So those stories don't get reported. So our very educated, very well-meaning, very civically engaged audience starts to think that racism isn't a thing. It's not really a problem. And, you know, Islamophobia isn't a thing, it's not really a problem, and issues of sexism and all these other isms that are, you know, it's like, if anything, it's hard for white people, you know, white cisgender people to navigate all the crazy language that you have to, you know, deal with around these issues. It's so hard to figure out what to call people and their pronouns and all this kind of stuff, and it's just, you know, rattling my brain, and that's news to our audience, um, but we don't tell them that those other things that are have been oppressing people are still going on, and so they're shocked by it. And that leads to this, you know this, jeez, there's a bigot in this town. What's up with that kind of stories <laughs> Where it's like, you know the and I've been at that. That editorial meeting where the black and brown reporters have been telling you and pitching this story for like 10 years about this town, and nobody paid any attention to it until Trump got elected. So,
4: yeah. And I, I'd only add so, um, what you're observing um, about that imbalance, I, I, it's something that Lewis actually notes really well. In his piece, um, we have an intrinsic bias um, about what we're interested in. And I know I'm interested in different things than most of my bosses have ever been interested in. And I know that when I pitch it forward, well, Brian likes it when there's, like, a pretty lady. In bo- I'm sorry, literally. This is <laughs> the bosses that I've had. There's, a you know, a lady who, like, fixed it or I know. And, then, and I you know, you try and work um, into the system that exists because we can't torch anything above us. So you you try and like push past it. But in those instances with um, story imbalances that are gross and obvious, I think that there's, you know, rules of thumb to sit there and think, um, you know, okay, so my story does discuss a person of color. Where is that person situated in my story? Do they need to be the need, the lead quote, or do they need a bigger voice? And like sometimes it's like going back, you know, you write your story or you you know develop your um, podcast or broadcast, and you go back and you listen to the top, and you're like, well, the top isn't really going to work for the end, and you, you rework it. I think some of that thoughtfulness around balance needs to come in just. The raw navigation of what did I get? Did I really tell the story of this community? This guy that got blown up in Iraq and decided to come here and start an American dream life. Uh, why isn't that just as good of an entry into this storytelling as the soldier suffering from the ravages of war and PTSD? And actually, aren't those two people perfectly diametrically opposed to tell a very rich story if I offer them both weight and balance and, you know, dig in as deeply on both sides as I can. Um, I think that we just miss out on better stories when we don't make those considerations, Um, you know, even after you've had reporting and if you have to make another call and go back and, you know, try and get more. um, I think it's worth it to do that stuff, and um, it's always paid off when I've done it.
1: And I think it's worth calling, calling that out, it's like if a guy goes into a place and he shoots up the place, and the guy is Muslim, or even like vaguely Muslim adjacent, some you know somebody from Southeast Asia or somebody whose grandparents are from Southeast Asia, it's labeled a terrorist, uh, a terrorist incident. And if some that same scenario plays out, and it's a white guy with the gun, it's like. What did he get a hug this morning? Was he lonely? Did he need <laughs> no, really off his medication? Did he have too much sugar? And it's like, you know, <laughs> the idea of objectivity is you apply the same standards to every single instance, regardless of your relationship to the person in the story.
2: Um hi, I'm Curtis Gilbert from American Public Media. Um and uh obviously probably not allowed to comment on the Lewis Wallace thing in any way, but I have a question that's sort of related to that, which is, do you think we can draw some kind of line between ethics and the importance of being fair and neutral and objective, and public relations, which is about how we're perceived by our audience, because the same reporter who one day apparently is ethical, um, reporting on the radio, becomes unethical because something that was in their head before is out on paper now. And I was wondering if, if if ethics and public relations are the same thing and perception is equally as important as reality, or can we draw a line between those?
4: We have wildly differing views here. I'll start with mine. I think... Um, so here's the thing. When I when I decided to write the women's march piece, um, it reads as like a betrayal of my resume, right? I had been this like straight news reporter for ages, and then like it's almost like a coming out. Um, I have thoughts, and I think equality is good, and I'm gonna say so is apparently like a moment of controversy that you know um, is surprising to a lot of people. And a lot I can't tell you how many emails I got from women. You're so brave. Thank you for saying that. I've been afraid of saying that. I've been in newsrooms for years. And I can't tell you how many times I just, I looked at that and I thought, well, shit. Like, we've really let down... You know, I wish half of our newsrooms, but a small percentage of our newsrooms, who would have liked to be able to say this stuff out loud, or at least have a conversation that doesn't threaten their employment and livelihood. Um, I think that there is a problem, and I think you know, marketplaces move to fire Lewis is reflective of, yeah, corporatism, PR um, deciding that like this kid is some sort of public liability, and um, you know, how dare he denigrate our brand and concept. Um, and I just I disagree. I think it's great to ask questions. I think the curiosity should have been responded to. I think if he had managed to expand that conversation in that workplace, it would have been a boon to that workplace. Um, I don't think we have to be in the closet about our humanity. Um, as journalists but I think that because newsrooms are terrified of losing money and losing readers and losing all this stuff and I think it's mostly money, money, money um, they want everyone to fall into line with this like you know ridiculous ubiquity that it just doesn't exist I am not Kai Rizdahl. I will not see eye to eye with him on many things. Um, Please value me as a person and an individual who's had a unique ethnic identity and experience. Um, It's what I ask from my employers, but I don't think a lot of them are willing to do it because it's seen as a liability. Even when you're just being curious, even when you're just stating um, that you have a personal cultural difference, uh, that somehow is a liability. Like, I work at McDonald's and I'm on a diet. And, you know, like, I, I just, I don't, I don't see how um, my existence and what I do is a denigration of, of a brand.
1: Um, I think that um, public radio in particular has this kind of aversion to people saying nasty things about us because it hurts our feelings um, and we think that we're the good guys all the time and we really, you know, so there's kind of a weird reaction To um, Critical Mail, I worked at Salon.com for two tumultuous, interesting years um, right before and after George Bush got elected. And we loved hate mail. It's like if you (laughs) didn't get a letter accusing you um, like Jake Tapper did of being a member of the Mossad or being in the pocket of big whatever or somebody cussing out, you know, your your political beliefs, you weren't a real reporter. Um, And the thing that worries me about, um, you know, and I'm not going to defend Lewis's firing. I don't think that that was, that wasn't the right step. I think that the standard was not clear. It's obviously not clear. No offense to anybody you work for, but the standard was obviously not clear and obviously not evenly applied. But I think that, you know, we take criticism from certain people as, oh, we got to fix this. And it's like, and people in, and I'm just going to say this because it's just true, people in marginalized communities, people in your own newsroom who are sitting right next to you saying, maybe you don't want to report it that way. Maybe there's a difference between a Mexican gang and a Central American gang. Maybe you don't want to say that, you know call the whole neighborhood responsible for burning down that CVS in Baltimore after Freddie Gray died. Maybe you don't want to do that. You know, those critiques are like, you're oversensitive. You're not a real journalist because you're a person of color. You've got a dog in this hunt. You're not, you know, unbiased. You know, if you have someone who is trying to correct a mistake that you've made, then, you know, as a journalist, that's a good thing. If you're telling, if you're trying to placate people who have an unreasonable critique of your work, then you're just being a coward. And the world really does not need cowardly journalists. So, yeah, you, you know, PR is out there for, for all those folks who want to do that. Oh, no offense to the people who are PR professionals. I know a lot of them. Good people. Hi. Um, I wanted to thank you for your list of questions and your handout. I know we haven't explored it at all. Um, because I think one place to begin is with more self-awareness and how, um, and how we occur to ourselves and then how we occur to others. And I think questions are a really good way to get there. And uh, like something I ask myself is, Who's suffering do I identify with? Who's joy? And am I free to, to be an individual or am, am I forced to be a stand-in for my group? So I was wondering, given that you obviously are good at, at these questions and coming up with them, because this list is fantastic and I plan to put it up in my uh, little cubicle, but um, how do we meaningfully incorporate these questions into our process when they aren't already part of the culture? So I think that's where we get stuck, is that we know the questions. When do we ask them? How do we make them right in the, in the DNA of our work? Um, for me, the, the place where I remember this being sort of a really tough thing is whenever we talk about you know, daycare and the high cost of daycare. And, you know, that who can be against, you know, affordable daycare? Um, but one of the things that occurred to me is that, you know, there's no such thing as big daycare. You know, there's nobody getting rich, <laughs> providing quality <laughs> child care for folks. And so where am I in that story, and where is my news organization in that story? Well, my news organization is full of women like me with degrees and not just jobs but careers and ambitions uh, that take us out of the home for 10 to 12 to 14 hours a day. It's not full of women who make their living taking care of other people's children, which is a tough job which pays almost nothing. Um, and why are, when we are telling a story where we think that there is a great outrage, a great outrage that, you know, attention must be paid to this. Where are we as far as the people on, and I hate to say the other side because it's almost never one side versus another side, but it's like when we talk about things that are we consider sort of universal goods and we don't want to talk about the part of this argument where we may be part of the powerful class. I know that, you know, in this discussion and in this group, you know, maybe it's because of where I work, we are part of the establishment. That's just not, I mean, seriously, we're, you know, the establishment's long-haired brother, we're the, we went to Brown and, you know, the other folks went to Harvard, but we're part of the establishment. And we're part of the economic power structure, and we're shot callers in the economy and in the culture. And when we see sort of our needs, we prioritize our needs and the suffering of people who are like us over the people who may be, you know, struggling because they're trying to meet our needs. Then that's where, that's the place where I wish that we asked more hard questions. It's like, Why do we think daycare should be cheap? Do we think it should be cheap because it's typically provided by, you know, women who are poor, women who are more likely to be less educated, uh, women who are more likely to be people of color? Is that why we think it should be cheap, even though we all, I mean, I'm an NPR listener. I know how important early childhood development is. Why do I think I should be able to get that for 4 bucks an hour? And nobody asks that question in the course of all of our conversations about, you know, childcare policy. And I wish that, you know, we were open to the idea that somebody else out there might see us as the overlord in a story, or see our position as being the the position of the oppressor.
4: I would just add um, yeah, making this stuff daily habit can be difficult. Um, it's unfamiliar. Um, And sometimes people find this conversation patently unpleasant. Um, And I think that um, it takes a very respectful and dignified treatment. Um, And it's honestly, I've, I've, you know, prostrated myself on like altars of power to say, may I please bring this up? It's important to me. And I think it might be important to others. Um, and, um, you know, I, that's my take. Everyone has a different tack of how you have difficult conversations. But um, maybe engaging off deadline, maybe engaging um, in moments that we are having those casual conversations, taking people aside privately. I find works I've had to address moments where um even with my students where the boys are kind of bigfooting one of the girls and it's it's an ugly look from where i sit and they're kind of bullying her and they're kind mm-hmm. of taking and i just have to set them aside and say gentlemen this is not how we treat each other in the newsroom and when she has a question you wait your turn and i'm telling you this now because i care for your careers and futures mm-hmm. i want you to be liked And I want you to be understood. And when it's your turn, you can have your turn. And it really, and I, you know, I'm a lecturesome, old, like, kind of, you know, spuddy-duddy soul. So I think people, you know, kind of come to expect it from me. But do it in your way. Do it in, and do it privately, sometimes respectfully all the time. Um, And just try and remind people, because what I find is most people aren't trying to be shitty. (laughs) Most people are really trying to, like, do well, and they just kind of get lost in their own habits and their own thoughts and their own um, feeling of self-worth, which sometimes is, like, you know, just inching out others around them, and they don't really see it. Um, So a little bit of politeness in in every interaction in journalism, I find, goes 10 miles further than being anything different.
6: No, I actually do feel bad because it's actually not a question. I was actually going to offer a response to the first question about how to uh, speak to a more ideologically diverse audience and not turn the person who disagrees with you into a cartoon like caricature of of, uh, what you disagree with. And that is to uh, find someone who has had a transformation uh, on that issue. So for example, on the issue of climate change, I will actually give a specific example. There is a man named Jerry Taylor who was a paid climate skeptic. He was the head of uh, the Energy and Environmental Policy Shop at the Cato Institute, and just would go on television and debate all the climate scientists. And he was amazing at what he did and was paid to do it, and won all of his TV battles and had a few experiences that um, invited him to re-examine the evidence. And had a pretty powerful transformation on climate change, and is now a climate activist, and is dedicated to mobilizing conservatives around market-based solutions to climate change. And um, what is uh, helpful about these these kinds of these people, I would say, is yes, yes, okay, they made a switch it from one you know place to another, and in this case, being from climate skeptic to climate activist so that will certainly speak to some people more than others but they can speak both languages and not only does he speak both languages he like wrote the talking points for the climate skeptic so he's like fluent in both languages Um, and um, that's A and then B um, oftentimes these changes aren't necessarily from like one position to the opposite position Um, it's often from feeling certain about Something to actually like being uncertain, or or, or just developing more of a of, of 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 a critical eye and a critical mind and a critical self awareness. So there's there's more kind of nuance. To the story than just like shifting from A to B, and now I'm gonna be even more shameless. Uh, and uh, and the reason I know these things is because I produce a show that is all about how people change. And Jerry Taylor is actually the latest episode. But uh, you kind of set me up for that, so you I gotta didn't tell put that you, out there. Go
1: go all how the way. Give it? us the name of the show. All right, the
6: name of the show is called Reckonings. Thank you. And uh, <laughs> there have actually been two climate conversions in there, and I would be happy to, to talk to you um, about those. And uh, yeah, and I just have found, yes, so people who have had changes uh, in this way can speak to a broad audience in a way that they can relate to, which I have found very helpful.
4: Cool. Thank you.
0: Hey, thanks for this panel. This is great. I wanted to ask, I've been thinking a lot about uh, the election coverage I worked on, um, and uh, I was a daily Big daily, uh, it was the takeaway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Good so, show. Great show. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I was working on it, um, I was the only woman in the control room and there was a male host. And this was during the, uh, you know, first female nominee for president. Um, and it just was a really, I found myself in situations where I was like, Defending the woman nominee for president even in internal discussions in the control room. And I, I you know, I'm, I'm honestly, like, I'm, I wasn't, like, a woo, Hillary, you know, like, I'm a journalist. Um, and I guess it just, it left me feeling like I, I just don't know how to navigate those conversations when, like, no one around me saw... It. And then I just would, like, edit sexist things out of tape...
5: <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> on my own. <laughs>
0: um, which is another story, but I, I just am not sure how to handle that. Like, I, I mean, I, hopefully we'll be in this situation again, right? Um, that we'll have another woman nominee, or we'll have another person of color nominee, and it just—how do you manage those situations when you're the only one in the room? Um, oh, it's so hard. Without being it's like so the defend the defender of the candidate. I mean,
4: I'll, I'll tell you. Um... Something about my manner, I think, lets me get away with some of this stuff. Um, But, you know, sometimes when I hear an outright sexist comment, like, I'll say, cool take, bro. And let, you know, it's just like, it's a little comment that lets them know, like, A, that's gendered. B, like, oh, God, hot takes, give me a break. And, you know, it just kind of, like, it sets up that, like, I'm being a little sarcastic and I don't care for this. Um, I also, um, you know, and I honestly prepare to be disliked. Um, there's a little bit of just hot, raw feelings when you uh, reproach someone, even a tiny bit. Um, And I'm willing to, and I do, I go out of my way to intellectually respect the people I disagree with. I, you know, I bring cookies to work. I'm a nice lady to deal with. I, you know, I do what's asked of me. I over-deliver whenever I can. Um, And I hope it wins me a little bit of leeway to be myself, too. Um, and i 'll just tell you it sucks. Some people just look at you differently forever. Some people are like, Wow, you seemed nice, but yeah' like it 's like I did seem nice, and I'm still nice. Um, I just, I think we've all we've all got so much growing to do. I suck at so many things. I, I want to be better at so many things. I want other people to be active in their growth, too. So, and if I don't get it, then tell me so. If I just, you know, reproached you and I was wrong and you're actually super woke and awesome, uh, awesome. Like, let's talk about that. That's fine. Um, yeah, I I wish I had like something prescriptive, but it's actually like you're entering and and a place of vulnerability, not just for yourself but for others. So you have to just try and
1: approach it with tact and grace. Um, I also bring the cookies <laughs> to the newsroom meetings. I don't know yeah. if that's like a you know a um, kind of a, a good tactic, but I think that. You know, in a newsroom, you're in a position, the whole business of the newsroom is to call, to stand for truth, and truth is uncomfortable. And this whole idea that if you're the woman in the newsroom that, you know, think about the people in the newsroom, and this is actually something that I've dealt with more times than I care to to count, is that who do we think needs to be liked in the newsroom? Who needs to be likable in the newsroom? You know, who is being mean and who is being, you know, demanding a perfection because that's the standard. It's like you don't have to be, you know, we don't all have to leave the newsroom being friends. We all have to leave the newsroom knowing that we got to the hard truth and we're able to deliver that to the audience. And I am like, no apologies for, you know, calling people out on that kind of thing i mean there's a way to do it and a way not to do it it's like you know but you sometimes you just have to deliver sort of a hard check to people when they say something sexist in the control room you ask them it's like are you cutting this you know with this in mind because i think you're wrong on the facts you know, and take the chance that that person's going to say, oh, she's mean. I mean, it's like, come on, it's a newsroom. Are we all, you know, you as the woman are just, you know, supposed to be there delivering the hugs and the good feelings? No, you're there delivering the facts just like anybody else. So don't be shy about telling somebody what the truth is and when they're taking your product, your, you know, your story in the wrong direction. Yeah. Yeah yeah
4: at uh, last, like I would say it's about the story, yeah every single some you know sometimes people will be shitty to you and you know you'll be at work and you'll go home feeling like garbage. The only thing that makes me feel good is the story. I look back at the story and I said, You know what I produced. you know what It killed It was mm-hmm. great, like we did a really good job, so where my defenses go all the way up is on the story, and I maybe sublimate myself too much, but I have health care, and I see a therapist regularly
5: <laughs> so.
3: Well, thank you. Yeah, any questions for me in person? Thanks for listening to the Third Coast Pocket Conference. We'll be back next week with another session from 2017. But in the meantime, you can always check out our audio archive at thirdcoastfestival.org or download our podcast, ReSound, for the greatest audio stories from around the world. All right.